I'll try that again. Good morning. Welcome. You guys are in Trailhead. You're in church. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Brian, and probably you're used to seeing me upstage, but just with a guitar in my hands and behind a mic, and that's not the case this morning. I will be preaching this morning, giving you a sermon. Um, and honestly, some of you guys probably don't know, I'm currently a student, as well as a worship director and collegiate director. I'm a student at Covenant Seminary, and I'm working on my Master's of Divinity, and I hope, beyond hope, to be done in spring of 2020. So, um, but yeah, it's been a pretty hectic few years between school, kids, and, and work, uh, but it's also been a lot of fun, and honestly, I'm incredibly thankful and incredibly excited to be standing here before you. I mean, this is one of those things that Steve and I kind of planned and journeyed about for years, it seems, and so I'm excited to see what the Lord has for us this morning. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 5. And so if you look at the seat back in front of you, you're going to find a black Bible, and you'll locate chapter 5 on page 530. And so as you're turning to chapter 5 on page 530, some of you may remember this passage from a few weeks back. Uh, Danny from Converge, uh, he actually had preached from this exact same passage, and he focused on sexual sin, its destructive power, and kind of the temptation of pornography today. He encouraged us that morning to stand firm in our faith in the midst of trial and to seek our hope in Jesus. Well, as we look at the same text, I'm going to actually be doing so from a fairly different vantage point, which actually gives us insight to the simple yet complex nature of Scripture. Paul, in 2 Timothy, he states, All Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, equipped for every good work. So it should really come as no surprise when we see one text being uh, leading to multiple applications. Okay, and so here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Scripture uh, is subjective to the reader, and I'm also not saying that it doesn't interact with objective truth. More of what I'm getting at is that a single passage sometimes can have multiple applications built around this kind of central, unchanging theme, uh, which is what we're going to be diving in. So it's my hope, as we unpack Proverbs 5 this morning, that it would actually equip us that we may be equipped for every good work He has for us. So, verse 1, chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not wander or ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your laborers go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, 
and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. The word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as we come to your text this morning and sit under your word, Lord, I pray that my heart and the hearts of those sitting here would be softened to receive what it is you have for us, that they'd be softened to hold knowledge and wisdom, to to turn our ear and eye towards you, to open our hearts that we may be corrected by your word, that we may be encouraged. Lord, I pray that as we leave today from this text, that we would leave with an understanding of both the righteousness that you offer in your son Jesus, through him and through faith in him, we may walk the, the, the path of righteousness with you. That's my prayer and my hope. It's in your name. Amen. So, for those of you who don't know me, I have always enjoyed adventure. I love the thrill of something new. You know, if it's uh, you know, cliff jumping, or if it's a road trip, or if it's living in a condemned barn house with four guys like I did in college, uh, which was the ultimate adventure, uh, I enjoy not knowing where we're going. I kind of like the thrill. And so, are there any other adventure seekers out there? People that just like, yeah, handful, okay. Some of you need some coffee to, to stir it up, I understand. But here's the thing. I like adventure, and I also like to go fast. And so when I was 14, my parents had taken us, my brothers, I've got two brothers, they took us to a trip to Colorado, which was very kind of them. Um, I think it was the last trip we were ever invited on. Um, You'll get a sense of why. But at some point, we visit this place called the Alpine Slide, which is this ginormous luge park uh, that operates year-round, but predominantly it's in the summertime because it's when the park's not making any money from skiing. And so I think I got a picture of a luge up there. It's kind of like a toboggan, and uh, that's not me, um, just pointing it out. But that is a luge, and the luge is, it's meant for speed and precision, okay? I was all about speed. <laughs> I didn't care as much about precision. Uh, but here's the thing. This park is designed, it's designed for all skill levels. I mean, beginner to expert It's meant for people that have no idea what they're doing, first time on one, all the way up through, this is what I do for my life, I guess. But here's me, 14, and of the many choices I had available to me, I chose, if you know me, the hardest and the fastest slide. I could reasonably coerce the park staff to let me go down. Like, had to convince them. No, I've I've got a history of doing this. Like, not true. So here's the thing. Before they had allow you to go down the slide, you had to sign some waivers, and you also had to listen to a brief explanation of rules and safety features. Makes sense. You're going down something designed to carry you at 40 to 50 miles an hour, right? Okay. I vaguely remember hearing about this thing called a handbrake while, while we were going through this, like vaguely, but pretty sure I convinced myself I don't need that. Like people like me, we don't need that. Just so much skill, so much confidence. Just let me be. So, when 14-year-old Brian strapped himself into the luge, 
absolutely no one was surprised when I shut down the whole slide because I got into an accident. I mean, absolutely no one that knew me was surprised. I wonder who flew off the rail here. Looking back, there's really only one surprise. Why did my parents, who know me, why did they let me get in this thing alone? I, I don't know. Complete lapse of judgment on their part. So I'm going to blame them. Anyways, at some point midway through, I began to feel this emotion. Okay, I'm 14-year-olds. I, I don't really know what it is. I think we would call it fear, right? It's probably what I was feeling. And it was a somewhat foreign emotion to me. I didn't really know how to deal with it, and I didn't quite know how to respond. But before I had time to think about that, I was off the path. I had hit an embankment going entirely too fast, and I found myself strapped to this now airborne projectile that should be on a, you know, no, it's, it should be attached to the ground. That thing is now coasting through the air, and I'm corkscrewing with it. And here's what they say. They say in times of crisis, time slows, and that is 100% true, 100%. There's a chairlift above me, and it's bringing people to the top. And all I can say, probably the best way to put it, is the entire chairlift lost their collective mind, like just completely started screaming out. Children were crying. Moms were freaking out. One man clearly said, dear God, save this child. Like, <laughs> all this is happening as I'm kind of corkscrewing, not attached to the path at all. It was both epic and awful, right? It was the most intense. And then I got to the bottom. So I, here's the thing. I, I actually got to the bottom. Like, I did it. But I was missing something. Um, I was missing a great deal of skin right between here and here. No broken bones, but it all kind of peeled off. And it was just kind of like you could see things you shouldn't see, and it just kind of peeled back. I don't have a picture of that, um, <laughs> so don't worry. But at that same time that I noticed this was gone, this entire fleet of staff just came around me, and I was like, this is really strange. And they started asking me a ton of questions, and I don't remember all of them, but one in particular, they said, was there something wrong with the brake? <laughs> I replied, no, I never used it. <laughs> I just, so knowing how the legal system works now, I should have waited for my lawyer, like that's what I should have said. I said, let me get my lawyer. Um, but here's the thing. I, honestly, I never, I never touched it. I never grabbed the brake. I never stopped myself from going forward. I didn't listen to the instructions when they were given. I never considered for once that I couldn't handle my own decisions. And so I went on my own path, and it ended in disaster. So what happened? You know, kind of looking back. Well, I think two things in reality. The first is I actually placed a great deal of, of kind of uh, trust in myself. I trusted in myself. I trusted in myself to be able to see the situation and make the decisions and, and, and go confidently and stay on the path. So I trusted in myself. And here's the second thing. I didn't listen to instruction primarily because it went against my desire. It's like, no, I want speed. And instruction is going to keep me back. Here's the thing. Like Solomon's son and like me on the Alpine slide, we are all prone to do life trusting in ourselves. We're prone to discard the Word of God 
in favor of what we feel is good. And Solomon knows this. He's no fool. He's been around. And it's why he instructs us to be in community. Let's go ahead and take a look at verses 1 and 2. It says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. So Solomon instructs his son. He says, be attentive. So he's saying, look at me. Look at me. Some of you guys have small children. One of the things you have to teach them, look at me in the eyes, okay? Stop looking everywhere else. Next thing is listen. So literally bend your ear. Now, think about this. When are you normally instructed to do something? One, either when what's being instructed doesn't come natural to you, right? You don't have to tell people to stop looking at uh, or to, to start looking at shiny objects. You're just attracted to it. You just see it or when the consequences are extreme, okay? So it's interesting. The son is told what to do before he's told why to do it. He's told, look and listen before he's given the reason. And now this type of phrasing, when used in literature, actually has a purpose. It's known as parallelism. It's where we take that second phrase, in this case, verse 2, and it's going to help expand and explain verse 1. Okay, so he says, be attentive, so look at me, incline your ear, listen to me, that you may keep discretion. Okay, literally minimize offense, and that your lips may guard knowledge. It's kind of an idiom for protecting what you know. This is what Solomon is saying. He's saying, if you want to be the type of person that is known for minimizing offense, then listen to what I'm saying. And this leads to the first insight from the text. Number one, wisdom requires listening to wise community. Listening to wise community. Seen implicitly within this text, there is no transfer of wisdom without listening. <laughs> there's, there's no transfer of what we need unless we bend the ear. And here's the thing. Not all things that are told to you are things worth listening to. The type of instruction that we're asked to receive comes from wise community. Solomon is showing that we need to be around people who speak the powerful truth of God's word into our life. That's the type of community we need. And notice how Solomon speaks to his son. He says, be attentive, incline your ear, keep discretion, guard knowledge. There's this sense of desperation in his voice. Like, I know these things because I've gone down the paths that lead to the dark places. I know these things because I've allowed myself to chase after false idols and false gods and temptation. Solomon speaks from knowing. And he's pleading with the son. And, and hear this, the beautiful gifts of knowledge and wisdom are either gained through hardship or hearing. And the problem is that simply going through hardship doesn't guarantee you'll gain wisdom. There's many who endure hardship and never learn from it. So listening's key. 
And for those of you who remain unconvinced that you need the wisdom and community part, uh, verse 3 and 4 address that as well. Let's look there. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So, a few takeaways. One, foolishness looks pretty good from a distance, right? We've got dripping with honey, smoother than oil. Kind of sounds like a vacation, right? Some vacations. Vacation to a tropical place on a cruise. But if we dig in a little, we're actually going to come to a very different understanding. So, first thing, I'm going to take us back to verse 3. Dripping with honey, it gives us this imagery of like a passionate kiss. Or it may deal with the type of speech being used, speech designed to flatter. Now, we know that oil would have meant olive oil, and so this would have signified something smooth and gentle, something designed to entice. We're in the ancient Near East here. This would have been an idiom that the, the original readers would have understood. We're talking about something that's enticing. So the text seems to imply that Solomon is focused on the type of speech, which in this case would be flattery. And now let's go ahead and put into practice what we just learned, that use of parallelism, okay? We're going to use verse 4 to expand and explain verse 3. One, wormwood is a plant, and it's a plant that would have been uh, producing this very bitter-tasting juice, okay? And so what Solomon is effectively saying is that this this type of speech that I'm looking at in verse 3 from this woman, honey, oil, all this, well, it looks good at a distance. But once you get close, it's like death to your soul. It's deadly. And a two-edged sword indicates the violent nature with which this flattery conceals. Now, here's the thing about flattery. The person being flattered is often in the worst position to identify the flattering. You've got honey thrown at you. You're seeing oil thrown at you. The last thing you're seeing is seeing clearly, which is why you need to enter wise community. Because wise community is in a much better position. They don't have oil and honey flung at them. They can see what you don't see. They're in a position to identify where you are better than you can identify where you are. And here's my experience. Sometimes it's the most beautiful things. It's the things that look the most desirable that are actually concealing the darkest paths, the paths that bring about the most destruction. And Solomon would would argue the same. Look at him in verse 5 and 6. He says, Her feet go down to death. Her steps Follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. When I went down the luge, I thought I could have my speed and stay on the path. I convinced myself I didn't need safety or a handbrake. just needed me. And I justified my desires with this vague understanding of my ability. And because I was caught up in the promise of speed and adventure, I didn't see the reality of my situation. I didn't see it. I became 
paralyzed in my pursuit. And that's the nature of sin. You become paralyzed in its pursuit. We drink the promise of freedom. We drink in the promise of control only to find ourselves wearied and emptied and enslaved by the very things that promise so much. We hear the lie, and here's the lie you're going to hear. Trust yourself or follow your heart. We put these on like our greeting cards or we put them on the, you know, our walls. We'll make decorations out of it. And the problem is, is it never once identifies that you can actually deceive yourself. Here's what Solomon's saying. He's saying the path of sin always looks good from a distance. We can always justify it in our minds, which is why we need wise community around us, community that points us to the truth of God's Word, community that sees what we don't see. But here's the thing. We also need humility because we need humility to actually receive the words from that community. Turn with me to verse 7 and 8. It says, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Solomon's instruction actually gives us an insight to the nature of temptation. Okay, so he's used this, this example of a path, which is kind of our way of journeying through life. And, and we're either going to stay on the path and, yeah, of righteousness or we're going to take detours. Now, Solomon instructs his son. He says, don't even go near the door. Don't even go near it. Now, unless the door of her home is on the path, the text is implying you actually have to take a step away from the path, which means the step towards something is the step away from something else. The step towards destruction is the step away from righteousness. And this is the nature of temptation. Temptation is often one small step at a time. People don't normally just stumble into the house of an adulterer. I mean, maybe throughout human history it's happened. But, but normally it begins with a small step into fantasy. Start playing it out in our mind. And then that leads to ever-increasing steps off the path. And we have weird ways of justifying this, don't we? We'll say, well, it's only in my mind. No harm, no foul. Or we'll tell our friends, I know, I know, I really should stop speaking to this person in that way. Or maybe it's actually our friends who are pushing us towards these small steps of sin, saying things like, follow your heart and trust yourself. You know, who knows? Whatever it is, your action is either keeping you on the path or it's taking you off. It's active. And here's what I need you to see. These small steps that seem so harmless can lead, after a long time of weaving and, and, and hiding, to the greatest paths of destruction. That's, that's where they go. Solomon says so as much in verses 9 through 11. He says, Lest you give your honors to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. 
Now Solomon, he started off this conversation. There was a desperation in his voice. I think it's reached fever shouting pitch at this point. I think he's crying out to his son, Son, I know where that path goes. I know how quickly pleasure turns into pain. I know how one step turns into another and to another and to another, and I know what it feels when you're lost and unable to stop. I know. And honestly, we've all been there at times. That point where you're like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here? There's so much pain. There's so much confusion. There's so much desperation. I, I don't know how I got here. And we trace the steps back. And oftentimes it started with just one small little justifiable sin. We said, we'll be okay. We can handle it. See, Solomon knows where the dark paths end. And which is why he's calling his son not just to listen and not just to be in community, but you need to heed, you need to do, you need to act upon what I'm saying. And this leads to our second insight from the text. Wisdom requires humility to receive correction. Wisdom requires humility to receive correction. I think verses 12 and 13 illustrate this point perfectly. It says, And you say how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Listening to wise community is one part of that equation, but it does you little to no good to hear wisdom and not act upon it. And here's the scariest situations. The scariest situations, and they often happen within church or, or Christian homes, is where you're hearing, you're being inundated with wisdom, and you're just pretending to follow it. You're showing up on Sundays, you're going to community group on Wednesdays, you're hanging out with the people, but it's all an act. Look, we, we can safely assume that the man who cries out in verse 12 was at one point in time a boy. Okay, And this boy would have been growing up in the midst of the congregation. He would have been known by the people of his church community. He would have been taking part in the worship of God. He would have been at the sacrifices of the temple. He would have been under the instruction of his teachers. He would have been encouraged and equipped by the religious leaders. Cared for and loved by his parents and peers. To the outside eye, he was on the path of righteousness. But he was a hypocrite, and he played the game of deception, that game where we know all the right words to say and know all the right actions to do, but our heart remains so cold and distant from God. And here's the thing. You play the game, it only hurts yourself in the end because his end was ruined. Pull this back. Solomon knows we're prone to deceive ourselves. He knows. He knows we justify the small steps without seeing our situation. Clearly, he understands. 
And that's part of why he's calling us into wise community. But he also knows we can be in wise community and play the game of deception. We need to humble ourselves and receive correction from his word. Receiving correction means we submit to the word of God rather than our desires. It means we heed the voice of those who point us back to the grace and truth of God's word rather than the voice of ourselves. Look, when I was at the top of the Alpine slide, I went through the motions of learning the safety procedures. Like, I had to show, I'm sure, a basic understanding of how to maneuver the craft and slow it down. But it was all in one ear and out the other. I, I, I didn't really heed the instruction. And not only did I have an inflated view of my ability, I had desires that wanted speed at any cost. And so when I weighed the cost, I, I went with what I thought would give me the most pleasure. But here's the thing. The story didn't end when I got down the slope. I told you before, I think this was the last trip my parents invited the boys on. And there's a reason for that. And now as a parent, I very much understand this weird mixture of wanting to make sure your child's okay and simultaneously kind of wanting to physically exhort them, you know, in the name of Jesus. I love you, and you're driving me crazy. My parents weren't surprised by my actions, but they weren't pleased either. And as for the rest of the trip, I spent most of it watching my brothers jump into a pool, have fun, as I sat there with this bandaged arm, thinking, why did I think flying through the air in a luge was a good idea? And though my initial discipline came in the form of pain and not being able to join the pool, I'm fairly certain in the back of my father's mind that this is what he was thinking of when he, when he made me wait till I was 17 to get my license. I, I can't prove that, but <laughs> he never gave me a straight answer on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what was in the back of it. He's like, yeah, I remember when you flew through the luge. Anyways, here's the question. Where does this text leave us today? So if, as we've journeyed together with Solomon, we've been instructed to heed correction in wise community. And I think that's where we need to start. And so at Trailhead, we, we take you know, community pretty seriously. Um, it's intertwined into almost everything we do. Community groups, which is the focal point for life-on-life relationship, are scattered throughout the Metro East. And in fact, if you were to walk out this door and take a, take a right, you'd notice this map of the Metro East. And I think in the next few weeks, we're going to be placing the various homes uh, that represent where community groups meet. And the reason we do this is we, we know that providing context for people to know and be known outside of Sunday mornings is so important for growth. Big changes often happen in small groups. And it's that wisdom that requires listening to the Word of God being best done within the community of His people. And so we're actually nearing the perfect time for getting into a community group. Uh, most groups will start in September and kind of run the course through May and June. It kind of follows the school year. And so some of you are probably ready to sign up. You're already in. You're ready to go. You're going to hit connection point. Done deal. And that's awesome. Uh, but maybe some of you guys are on the fence about it. Maybe some of you are, I don't know enough about Trailhead to just jump in. So I'm, you know, 
and take my time. And here's the thing. There's still ways for you to get connected. I would still invite you, even if you're on the fence, to check out Connection Group because there's a lot of ways with which to get to know Trailhead and a lot of ways with which we can open up different avenues for being in community. One of them is this three-week group that basically allows you to kind of dip your toes in, get a history for the church, get to know what the feel of community actually is. Or if you're in college, we're actually hanging out today right after service, and I would encourage you, uh, find uh, Grant. Where's Grant at? There's his hand. Find him. He'll be over by Connection Point. But we're just going to hang out, get to know students, um, and get some free food, and, and really start to build a community that's purposed towards SIUE's campus. But with that said, I, I want to speak to those of you who are in here and have been hurt by community. It's important to acknowledge that community can be difficult. And I, I don't want to give the sense that community is just kind of this, everything's perfect now, because it, it, it's not. Here's the thing, community can actually be very difficult because people are messy. And if you haven't noticed, Christians are people, which means they're also messy. And some of you guys have very deep and profound hurts from previous church experiences and and I understand. I've, I've been there. I've walked through some incredibly difficult moments with people that I both love and care about and, and have had to really battle to see the best of. Sometimes life goes sideways. And it's true, sometimes the most unhelpful voices are going to be the ones sitting right next to you. That can happen. And so I don't want to minimize that experience. I don't want to take away from the reality of that. But here's what I have to make known for you this morning. God's word says the call for wisdom requires the body of believers to be in community. There's no asterisk next to it. There's no clause and. That's the way forward with wisdom. And so at Trailhead, we see this best lived out in community groups through the local church. And there's one more type of person I want to actually talk to this morning. Some of you are just... You like doing this thing on your own. You're like the lone range Christian. You just kind of do your thing, just Jesus and you. And it's true, and I'll agree with you, that it is Christ alone that saves, but he doesn't save us so that we remain alone. He saves us to be within community with one another. Isolation does not lead to wisdom, which is why community is necessary in the life of each believer. And here's the second thing we talked about today. So if one was listening and being in community, the second thing is how do we do this thing called humble correction? And so in an effort to explain that, I'm going to go to verses 12 and 14 just for a second and really kind of play this situation out. It's in this section, Solomon has shared the voice of this man, right? And we've looked at this man as a boy, how he played that game of deception. And so in staying with this theme... Anyone who has children or works with children, you understand the importance of discipline. Now, discipline is important for all ages, but you see it particularly clear when you're dealing with children. See, a child that has no discipline is both a danger to others and themselves. A child without correction will undoubtedly learn to deceive, but also be deceived. And this is why, because foolishness, if I can just hold foolishness out here, it's, it's quick comfort. Like, that's what foolishness is. 
But quick comfort soon becomes like a bridle in the mouth of a child, that which is designed to steer a horse. It's like that's lodged in the child's mouth. And when correction doesn't take that out, here's what happens. That thing actually begins to direct the course of not just motives and not just action, but it begins to actually shape their character. They become attuned to following the quick things, the short things that bring the most pleasure. And the thing is, in verse 14, we saw that leads to ruin. It's why correction is so important. And when done well, correction will strip away that which ensnares while leaving the dignity of the person intact. For correction isn't always done well. I've got a quote on here from Douglas Wilson. It says, We need Christ. And that means if we have received Christ, we will also extend Christ to others. If you are not extending Christ, then you are trying to get people to believe that you have not received him. You, have for, you forgive because you have been forgiven. You extend grace the way you have received grace. And here's the kicker. And how much grace you extend is a measure of how much grace you think you have received. See, problems arise when we seek correction apart from the truth and grace of God's Word. Problems arise when we come into correction without humility, which is why humility is needed both for the person receiving correction and for the person giving it. If we don't see ourselves in light of the God's grace towards us, in light of the gospel towards us, then the way we administer correction will be mired within our own sin. And honestly, I think this is one of the greatest reasons why some people have been so hurt by church. Here's the thing. Community, correction, both are necessary. Both are good. Both of them are seen clearly in the Word today, but there's something greater that they point to. There's one who never took a step off the path of righteousness. There's one who never played the game of deception. There's one who always inclined his ear to the voice of the Father. He is the greater son. He is Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered death, sin, shame, and folly, it wasn't his that he conquered. It was ours for those who believe in him. Here's the thing. We can get out of the luge because we know and trust Jesus. We can step away from the path of darkness because we've been shown the light through Christ. Solomon, this is unbelievable, Solomon could only instruct his son, stay away from that path because it leads to death. Christ instructs us from having washed and renewed the crooked paths of our mind and heart. It's an absolute game changer. It's by His grace alone that we're saved. It's by His Spirit alone that we have hope for walking the path of righteousness. We walk in obedience to His Word because He first walked in obedience to His Father. And that's our hope. We don't walk a path of righteousness to earn the grace of God. We walk because 
of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters right now who are struggling. Maybe there's things they need to confess to community. There's things that have been weighing on their heart that they need to bring to wise teaching. And they need to heed instruction. Lord, there's others of us who need to enter into community, and we're scared. We've been hurt. We don't know what that looks like to just start meeting with people and be known. Lord, I pray for those who are in that position of having to forgive and show grace. Lord, as you've done with us through your Son, Lord Jesus, as you have walked the path perfectly and extended your righteousness to us for those who believe, Lord, you are the hope with which we have. Lord, it's you (laughs) that community and correction points to. And so, God, I pray that this morning you would be made made great and that those who are lost would be found, those who are on the path and broken would be restored. I pray this in your name. Amen.